if you're speaking to a technology lead, which will be leading the integration of the technology, they actually have a very limited understanding of the compliance side of things. And, you know, they'll say stuff like, oh, we'll just grab a few data points and automatically verify someone where it doesn't really quite work like that. So it just depends on who you're talking to in that in either that initial discussion, but making sure you have that mapped out and then bringing in the other stakeholders and making sure you're talking about what matters to them is so, so important. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there, and welcome to Revenue Insights. Today's guest is Bjorn Baden, Chief Revenue Officer and co-founder of First AML. Bjorn, it's a pleasure to chat with you today. Great to chat with you, Lee. I'm intrigued to learn a little bit more about First AML. I know you guys are based over in New Zealand and are really growing a lot at the minute. But for everyone listening who hasn't heard or met you guys before, what's your story? Yeah, so just to give you a bit of um, background about me, I spent a lot of my career in in finance and, and corporate lending, um, where we it was a lot a lot of relationship building and a very relationship sale. Um, and we would win a client, we'd do a big flashy pitch, win a client, and then proceed to put them through one of the most horrendous onboarding experiences um, of all time. And and a big part of that was doing anti-money laundering checks. So making sure these corporations weren't laundering money and, and making sure that you know, all of their documentation was in order. Um, at the bank, it's a horrendously man- manual process. And I, I remember sitting there going, God, there's got to be a better way to do this. Uh, so that's essentially what, what came at First AML. So about four years ago, we decided, hey, let's get out of finance and um, make that onboarding process uh, easier for what really is um, some of the most expensive purchases people make. When, when you're borrowing 10, 20, 30 million dollars, um, why is that experience more um, painful than if you're uh, signing up for Netflix, essentially? So we, we really decided to focus on uh, corporate KYC or corporate customer onboarding uh, for financial institutions, law firms, accounting firms, uh, and real estate, because that's some of the biggest transactions you'll ever do. And the way they're, they currently onboard their customers is subpar if you've ever, <laughs> if you've ever had to sell a house or do anything like that. It's, it, it's quite painful. So, um, yeah, we launched the business about about four years ago. Um, fast forward to today, we're in sort of three countries, um, New Zealand, Australia, and the United Kingdom. And uh, we've, we've done our Series B round of funding, which, so we, I think in total, we've raised about 23 million pounds um, of, of venture. Obviously, a lot easier about a year ago than it is now, but luckily, we did our Series <laughs> yeah. B about a year ago, so that's good. <laughs> Amazing. And so, I'm guessing the, the type of customers that you're working with uh, you know, enterprise size, big companies, long sales cycles. Could you just give a bit of, uh, I guess, an overview of the type of companies that you're typically working with and I guess how you're working with them? Yeah, so we work with, we actually work with a lot of uh, venture capital firms, um, sort of mid-sized, mid-tier banks uh, and, you know, high-end law firms. So it is a, it is a, a very much a relationship sale. Um, a lot of trust needs to be built because 
we are doing, uh, we're in regulation technology and they have to be really comfortable with the process we run. And a lot of these, a lot of these companies, this is their first go at a, a digitization of this sort of process. So there has to be a lot of trust built before they'll, before they'll buy. So yeah, medium to long um, sales cycles, generally multi-threading, whether it's, you know, selling to the technology lead, the compliance lead, and then the chief chief operating officer usually. So, um, yeah, it can get quite complex, um, but it just depends on the size size of the client. And you touched on it there in terms of like multi-threading some of those deals and how it will change like based on the client. Could you give a kind of generic overview of what that process looks like? So is it you're kind of identifying a target account and then working out who the stakeholders are that you want to be speaking with? Is it slightly different to that? Yeah, no, that, that that's a really good sort of description of that. It's it's about figuring out who the right stakeholders are and and sort of what their what their biases are. So when you're talking to a head of compliance, uh, generally they're the one that set up the original process. So they're not that that happy when you tell them, hey, there's a much better way to do things. Uh, if you're speaking to a technology lead, which will be leading the integration of the technology, they actually have a very very limited understanding of the compliance side of things and you know they'll say stuff like oh we'll just grab a few data points and automatically verify someone where it doesn't really quite work like that yeah. so it just depends on who you're talking to in that in either that initial discussion but making sure you have that mapped out and then bringing in the other stakeholders and making sure you're talking about what matters to them is so so important mm. and what does that look like in terms of your go-to-market teams then at that point i assume i'm uh, making the assumption you know do you have you know, your sales marketing teams running side by side? What does it look like in terms of starting to penetrate those accounts? Yeah, so we we um, we sort of we multi-threaded via the obviously our SDR team, our BDR team, uh, but as well as we do quite a bit of account-based marketing. So uh, mapping out the accounts, understanding sort of who the who the key stakeholders are, uh, is really important. And then it's a sort of multi-pronged approach where some you know depending on the size of the firm, you know someone like a Deloitte or a PwC, there's just hundreds of stakeholders um, around different areas and that sort of thing. So basically peppering them with with that sort of stuff. Um, but even even during the sales cycle, um, when we know uh, that, hey, that other people will need to get involved, um, we have a lot of targeted ads going to people within that firm, uh, even before they've they've heard about us, because as soon as that conversation comes up, there's a little trigger in the back, oh yeah, I've, I've heard about them, they're meant to be quite good, aren't they? Um, so, so getting really, really um, focused in terms of um, you know how you're re- reaching out to all these m- multiple parties, whether it's um, active reaching out or more passive, um, you know, targeting on targeting on ads and things like that. Is there perhaps um, maybe one tactical technique that sticks out in your mind that really works in terms of, you know, getting a foothold in one of those accounts? You know, in in my world in B two B SaaS, it'd be getting getting a demo request. Right, it comes in high intent, great, off we go. In enterprise, obviously, you can imagine it's quite different. So, is there perhaps one thing that really stands out to you to really? Uh, start to get traction with those accounts. Yeah, so the, the highest impact sort of close rates we see are, are when when we have stakeholders engaged really really early on. Uh, so before we'll even we'll b- book in that meeting, uh, the the SDR does a lot of qualification in terms of who um, is the person that's you know booked that meeting in, and then make sure they get the right stakeholders involved in that initial conversation. Now, obviously, that's <laughs> that's easier said than done. A lot of times, people will be like, "Hey, no, you just need to talk to me first. 
But, you know, when we say, hey, look, like, you know, if we lo- loop in um, your COO uh, and you really like the product, then, hey, we can we can move this a lot faster for you, um, Mr. Compliance Lead, who has been really struggling, uh, you know, with, with this. Um, so, yeah, that's what our, we're training our SDRs to do a lot more of. It's, hey, um, you know, when you're, when you're qualifying an inbound lead, actually really dig into who, who they are, what's important to them, and then who else can they bring along to that initial demo. Um, so yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of work that goes into that, even when an inbound lead comes in. Is it, is that quite a um, quite a bespoke approach, or are there ways that you can almost temp- template it? If you see what I mean, so are there ways that you can basically report on that, and so you can actually see, you know, these are the these are the types of personas to typically get involved, for example. Yeah, so they're pretty they're pretty templated across uh, certain organization types. Now, the financial sector is just a massive beast, and depending if you're talking to a, a VC firm, a private equity firm, a bank, that can get very convoluted in terms of who needs to be involved. Um, but you know, something like a law firm, an accounting practice, they they often run in very similar similar sort of veins. So, um, being like, hey, have you thought about getting the COO involved or this person involved uh, is a very very easy conversation to have, and can you know our SDRs are templated on that to try and bring bring those people into the conversation early. Mm. Just gonna throw this one out there: Is there, in your mind, an ideal number of stakeholders that you'd want your perhaps SDRs, SAEs to have well engaged at a target account? Yeah. So again, it depends on the it depends on the size of the account, but ideally three. So we generally see like three are the decision really are the decision makers. Uh, you know, when when things need to get signed off at board level, um, having those people within the room making that decision uh, makes things a lot easier, right? So the the more people we can get across, the the I always tell I always tell the AEs they're like. Oh, we have to do another demo. We have to do another demo. I'm like, great. The more people, the more demos you do, I think it's after like two or th- three demos, your your win rate skyrockets to seventy over seventy five percent. So the more you're interacting with that client, the more time you're spending with them, the higher likelihood that you're going to close the deal. And when these are sort of fifty to a hundred thousand pound accounts, um, that is, you know, that you want to be spending that time and you want to be taking care of them and taking them through the process. Absolutely. You mentioned at the beginning of our chat about raising your Series B, was it twenty three million in funding? And obviously, you know, you guys started four years ago. It's a pretty um, almost like almost astronomical growth, right? Certainly going in that direction. So, what is how is a start with how has the revenue team grown in let's say in the last twelve months of time with that funding coming in, and how has it changed? Oh yeah, I mean, I can tell you a million things that we should have done better. <laughs> um, but I mean, the revenue team basically doubled. So about a, in, in April is actually when we launched in the UK. Uh, we now already have nearly over a hundred clients. So uh, it's been it's been it's been pretty rapid growth. But really, when we launched, it was a massive spray and um, spray and pray approach. It was hey, let's find out what ICP is and what sticks. So you could see the win rate was just horrendous <laughs> uh, when we first when we first launched because. We didn't know, you know, what sectors would really, you know, feel um, feel the pain in in this market. Um, so that was that was interesting. So I, I guess the, those early reps we call um, what I call Renaissance reps, and they they have a very different persona than than reps you hire into a new market after 12, 18, 24 months. Those Renaissance reps are, are ones that are sort of happy to just um, you know go flying to the wall. They're not actually that they're not actually that um, good at sort of doing the 
the, 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 the go-to-market motions on the qualification and all that sort of stuff. But what they are willing to do is just give it a go and, and talk to as many people as possible and figure out what works and what doesn't. So, you know, after about six months of that, we really refined our ICP really, really making it really, really clear on who we want to go after and where we're winning. And I think the win rates had like doubled or nearly tripled, um, you know, in this, in this, I guess, the four months after that initial six-month period. So that was really, really good because it allowed, allowed us to learn a lot. Um, but depending on your, 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 how you're funded, a lot of people can't afford to do something like that. I think, I think we launched in the UK with something like 16 reps. It was like seven SDRs and seven AEs. Wow. So it was, it was mental. It was mental. And they all, <laughs> I hired to hire them all remotely and they all started on the same day. Um, do not recommend doing that <laughs> unless you're very well funded because uh, sales team, they, they, they drain a lot of money. Yeah. Well, yeah, I can imagine it was uh, kind of like carnage to begin with. Now you mentioned there, there's a million things that you think you could have done better. Now we probably don't have time to go through all 1 million of them. But what would be the one that sits at the top of your mind of, you know, damn, I really wish I'd done that. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely um, having a better, well, having more resource in revenue operations before scaling up um, account executives and SDRs uh, is just is just like the number one thing. If I, if I could do the whole business again, my first hire in sales would be revenue operations. And I, I you know, I can't, I can't stress that enough for any sort of, you know, first time founders and that sort of thing, having, having that good base. And then, you know, you doing the founder sales, which, which we, we, which we did to sort of two, 3 million revenue, um, having that revenue operations person there setting all that up properly. Uh, so then you, when you do need to turn on the taps, you can scale very, very quickly. So, you know, when we doubled the size of the sales team, you know, we, we only had, we didn't have enough sort of, um, revenue operations resource. And you know we've spent you know six months basically playing catch up uh, until where we could actually seal the data and go oh okay wow <laughs> we need to fix this this and this um, so yeah that that is like the number one thing that I would I would do differently for sure I love that and could you perhaps give some maybe a few examples of specifically now you've got it set up you know the 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 value I guess that you're getting back from it you know what was it specifically that they came in and did. I'm assuming you've got RevOps now, right? Yes, yes. Um, you know, what they've been able to come in and do that's really changed things for you? Uh, really, sim- really, really simple stuff. So simple stuff like um, each AE having their own dashboard, right? And with, with you know, like I, I drew up all the metrics that I wanted everyone to focus on um, because, the, the, you know, this is their own business. That, that's how they need to be treating it. So seeing where they're spending their time in terms of um, activities, seeing what their win rate is, seeing where they rank again amongst their peers, uh, all of that sort of stuff is so so important for a rep to realize. Hey, am I doing well? Am I am I? Where do I need to improve? And it's and it's all very it's all very mechanical in terms of. Hey, I'm spending too much time doing this. I need to be spending more activity on the top of funnel. And it's and it's really really easy to. It's really simple stuff to see. But unless you have that set up properly, um, you know, it, it gets lost in the weeds. People think they're doing a lot better than they are. Like, oh, I, I closed three deals. It's like yeah, but we fed you twenty opportunities. So maybe you should have closed six. So just just those simple things. Um, visibility, I guess, is is how. I would sum that up is so so important and that that was a big change for us mm. how do you once you've something that always comes up is you know you got the data now you're getting the insights through how do you then take that and start to weave it into the sales process you know in my experience it's not enough to be like here you go mr or mrs a here's your dashboard and and having the knowledge of how to interpret it 
some do to be fair but in in your world at first aml how do you go about actually taking that insight and and build it into what you're doing on a day-to-day basis yeah so it it informs a lot of our uh, sort of our, our behaviors in terms of how we set things up um i think i think you know we have to remember that that salespeople will always do the easiest thing um because Look, that's just how that's just how they're wired, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So you have to set up your incentive schemes and incentive structures to reward to reward them enough so that they do the things that are, I guess, harder, um, because that that that's what you need them to do. So so things like for our SDRs, um, you know, giving them, you know, we, we were seeing them a lot of leads come in, but you know they weren't high quality. So actually, well, we're going to change it to sales accepted leads. So what you're going to get paid on now is um, when AEs accept your lead, that's when you will get paid immediately you see high quality deals come in and you can actually see the win rate the win rate improving um you know we're telling aes hey you need to have a win rate of x or you know a, you know this is where you need to hover so they get a lot harder on things they accept from the sdrs so all of a sudden just those small changes and you can see win rates go up by two three four percent and when you're when you're talking about you know the deal values that we're talking about here um that, that's hundreds of thousands of pounds um overnight in, in change yeah, I'm really interested to know, you touched on it there, it sounds like you've got a great kind of approach to, you know, finding those small increases. And obviously, I don't know specifically how big your deal size is, but by the sounds of it, you know, pretty huge. Could you perhaps give a bit of insight into maybe one or two other factors that you've found that have helped you, you know, those marginal gains to improve your win rates and shorten the sales cycles? So just just it's it's really it's really simple stuff like at the end of the first meeting having that next meeting booked in. So you can't actually move a deal through through the through the through the funnel now unless there is that next meeting date booked in. So you know really really easy things like that actually improve win rate significantly. Um, we do we do a lot of we use a, we use a sales methodology called Strongman for qualification of of deals. It's you know it's it's one of those ones like Spin or anything like that. Strongman's a bit a bit more intense um, in terms of finding holes in in your transactions like you know is there a timeline in place you know what you know do you have buy in from the right the right stakeholders and it allows them to then look at their deals and assess hey have i have i answered these these questions if not then i'm not actually being that realistic on when this will close so we we look at close dates for example as a major major factor like hey if you're pushing transactions out when you said they're going to close this month that's a really really big problem Something that I'm really interested to know a bit more about, you mentioned strongman there and the use of deal qualification. I'm curious to know, there's a lot of talk right now about deal qualification and so often it's, you know, how do we get our teams to actually adopt it? So what has that process been like for you guys in terms of, you know, going down the route of this is what we're going to do? How did you actually get your teams to pick up and use it? Is it still an ongoing challenge? It's it's always an ongoing challenge. So with, with this, with anything like this, it's reinforcement, reinforcement, reinforcement. Like every week, we're talking about the same thing over and over again until it's drilled into people. Like the Monday morning sales meeting is the same language as the Friday afternoon forecast. And then the same language in your one-on-ones. We actually have these these meetings where we um you have to bring a deal to the to the to the meeting, and you you have to bring your strongman qualification criteria. And it's my favorite thing to do is to tear it to shreds. Um, so <laughs> so I don't always join those meetings, but when I do, everyone knows that hey, I need to have this stuff down pat because we we see it working right. Like it, this stuff works because it allows you to understand your deal um, so much more. And to, and to me, like I you know, if people say that hey, this is going to close, 
that you know I, that's great, but I need to know when, <laughs> right? Like we forecast on a your monthly basis. We've got monthly targets. Um, if something closes two months later, that's as good as you opening a new opportunity. Right, like if you said it was going to close this month and it closes two months later, that's actually not good enough, especially in the environment that we're in now. So, um, making the sales reps more realistic on their deals is something this qualification criteria stuff is really, really good for. It's definitely the reinforcement side to it, and so often I find with initiatives that you want to run, you know, it helps being able to like demonstrate the 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 impact and the value of it. So, in your uh, um, kind of with your RevOps pe- people, your team there, have you been able to crack that nut yet in terms of being able to demonstrably show, you know, when you use Strongman, um, this is the impact that it's having on your deals? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. We had we had one that was uh, like a £120,000 account and you could see the whole the whole process was run really, really slick. So we use uh, we do a lot of deal post-mortems, um, so either on won deals or lost deals. And we talk about, hey, this is what worked well, this is what didn't. Um, so when a rep closes a really large opportunity or even when a rep loses a very large opportunity, um, we, will do a, we will do a post-mortem in front of the in front of the team and actually talk through, um, you know, what we did at each stage of that of that transaction, uh, which is really really valuable. It's really interesting. Is there um, is there perhaps a common thread in those post mortems that you're picking up on that's like, uh, you know, that's perhaps holding deals back, like particularly enterprise size deals. Yeah, definitely stuff around like contract negotiation when someone's like, oh, they give me the verbal yes. You know, that we actually have a stage in our in our pipeline called contracting because that becomes such a pivotal part of an enterprise sale in terms of, hey, like, you know, are they going to be able to agree to these terms? Are we going to be able to agree to some, you know, we get the, like we send them a terms of engagement and they're like, oh, actually, we have our own terms of engagement that we make suppliers sign and we're just sitting there scratching our heads going, what the, what the hell? <laughs> what do you mean you've got your own yeah. one? Um, so, so you know, that that stage is actually very, very important. And you see a lot of deals um, that you either thought were sure things that were going to close this month actually get pushed out two, three, sometimes even four months in that contract negotiation stage. And until that contract is actually agreed on, um, you know, the, the win percentage, you know, isn't higher than sort of 70%. So even though the, the, the whole stakeholders have agreed to anything, we actually have that stage at only at a 70% sort of commit win right because there's just so much that can happen uh in that process in an enterprise sale so um you know i, I think we you know i'm not going to call anyone of my aes out but we had one that you know the other day said hey this is going to close before the end of the month um their lawyer's just reviewing it and i was like that's not going to close at the end of the month that's not that's just not going to happen right like come on come on mate you you know this like it's going to be a week with their lawyer a week with our lawyer until until we align, this is probably an end of Feb close. So that sort of stuff is the more you do it, the just the more you understand, um, and that's what you really need to drill into the reps. Yeah, deal slipping, I think, is forever going to be a real challenge, right? Um, I, I'm curious to know, um, and I don't know specifically how long your sales cycle is, but do you have um, you know an idea in your head? You know, say it's for example like 100, 100, 150 days or something like that. Uh, if it runs, you know, you're at 150 days and say you're not at the contracting stage yet, um, at that point, are you allowing those deals to continue on or do you actually have a process in place? Because I know with enterprise, it can run a lot longer, right? You could have a huge deal in there, but it's taking a lot longer than it normally would. So do you still go chasing after those or is your approach now, you know, our time is better spent elsewhere? 
Yeah, so so uh, it, I guess we call them like stale opportunities. So unless unless there's an actionable next step within those opportunities, I always ask the rep to close these out and then reopen it um, if they're able to re-engage that account because it's so, so important. Our sales cycle isn't actually as long as you'd think it would be. It's about 60 to 70 days um, because oh, wow. because there is a sort of a lot of mid-market transactions that are that, that bring that down quite nicely, but there's nothing worse when I see when I see what, something in there for 120 days and it's like a 10,000 pound um, transaction. I'm like, why is that in there? Why is that clogging the pipeline? Um, so you know, that's in that that we, we we see all of that very very clearly. And I'm really hard on reps when it, when they're over 100 days and they're they're small they're small accounts. I'm like, you, this is just clogging your mind. You need to you need to either get the yes or no or, or move on. What we find works really well actually is break up emails. So if someone hasn't replied for a while, they're saying, hey, just FYI, you know, this doesn't sound like it's the right fit. Haven't heard from you in a while. I'm just going to close the file on my side. If you want to re-engage later, please let me know. And you actually get a lot of people going, oh, no, actually, no, let, let, let's keep this conversation going. Actually, sorry, I was really busy for the last couple of weeks. So little things like that actually actually move deals along um, really well. I'm really interested to know, how does this, it sounds like you're not, you've got a lot of good process in place. What is the knock-on effect then on your on your forecast? Because it sounds like you've got a good handle on, you know, we have a good handle on when deals are going to close whether we're actually going to whether it's actually going to land at the end of the quarter or not so what does the forecasting process look like for you yeah it's (laughs) forecasting is the bane of my life um because you know it's we're just always trying to get the reps better better at this but sort of we we have a friday forecast meeting where we literally look at every transaction um that is set to close this month and then the deal stage they're at so, you know, it's the 25th of the month month right now. Basically, anything that's not in what I call the commit stage is, is probably not going to close. So, you know, I can see in my pipeline right now, people have things in pricing proposal, which is, hey, we've given them pricing. You know, we're in the feedback stage. And I'm like, guys, that's not going to close before the end of this month. So depending on the deal stage and the time in the month, um, you know, we get really hard on that. It's And it's a Friday afternoon thing. Um, we have a beer <laughs> or, or wine, and then we go through we go through the forecast, and we're always like, hey, what is the next step with this deal? Did they say they're going to sign before the end of this month? You know, do we have a sharp sort of anything in place for them to get, you know, what's their incentive to close before the end of the month? But this happens every Friday. It's We all sit down in a, in a room and go, what are we working on for the end of the month? What are we working on for next month? What is realistic? What isn't? And it's still not perfect, but we're getting there. No one's no one's perfect. And if you do crack it, please uh, please let me know. Uh, <laughs> oh, we'll get you back on the podcast to talk about it. <laughs> All right, a penultimate question: What is a challenge that you're working on right now that you're perhaps still tr- struggling to solve? What's the biggest pain in your world right now that you're still not able to get over, other than forecasting? Yeah, so it's it, it's quite interesting. Um, for for us, it's for us, it's skyrocketing that win rate like we're getting we're getting to a point where it's like hey if we did a few things slightly differently um the the knock-on effect of that is like you know 20 or 30 percent more more revenue so um we're we're super super focused on things like ae attainment um at the moment and that that's probably my biggest my biggest issue i'm having i've got some people that are significantly overperforming uh, and then i'm trying to figure out how do we get everyone up to that uh, ae attainment i think is, is probably the number one thing uh, in my opinion that every chief revenue officer needs to focus on for the next 12 to 24 months there's no point adding more staff if your ae attainment is below like 65 or 70 percent 
because then you're just you're just throwing more money at something that you, you're just not going to be able to solve like that. Um, if you've got limited resource, the the number one thing you need to be able to do is either you know whatever threshold you set it at. We set it at seventy percent across the board is is where we want to be. So people under that probably need to move on, um, and then you know people around that they're okay performers, and then people who are at one hundred percent or you know one hundred and fifty percent or something like that are, are the ones we want to um, incentivize and keep. Um, so you know if we're you know 50% AE attainment there's there's no point hiring two more AEs that is just not going to solve your problem you've got a fundamental problem there so you have to get that attainment up um, whereas historically people would just do you just hire more AEs hire more AEs hire more AEs um, because of you know funding environment but that's dramatically changed now so um, getting really efficient in that in that metric uh, is, is probably our biggest challenge but I think everyone's everyone's in that boat yeah. Do you know kind of what the, the root causes of that are for you guys? In terms of yeah, in in terms of attainment rate, um, it's it, it's a mix of it's a mix of things. Um, a bit of inexperience, so it, you you have to really blend. You have to get the team blend right. Um, you know, over the last sort of eighteen months, uh, sales tech salaries have skyrocketed. <laughs> so you know you need to you need to you know if you're if you're trying to you know do things on a budget, maybe you hire an XSDR and you bring them in. Um, to be honest, a lot of a lot of salespeople have only been in roles sort of six months, and then they've you know they've quite quickly gotten promoted and promoted again so actually finding and retaining good talent is is very very difficult so i think that's probably the main cause of things so it's like you know historically you know even a couple of years ago you'd get someone in they were at a SaaS company for 3 years you know they were at attainment you've had to incentivize them to move them over great that's that's a good hire um whereas you know now it's like everyone's cv is like six months here six months there and i'm like you know like how can you be at quota if you've only been in an organization six seven months um but they just you know they seem to be jumping and then they've got two other offers on the table so you know judging their quality is is getting harder and harder but i think that's starting to change again now which is which is really good for revenue leaders um but you know getting that right mix of up and coming talent and then experienced talent is um, is really really good. I think I think probably the best thing we did was hire um, a couple of people from uh, Experian, which is a big data company, and um, and that man they put them through the absolute ringer in terms of in terms of methodology and training and that sort of thing. So being able to incorporate some of that, obviously a lot of that is you know some we, you know we don't want to incorporate because it's it's sort of um, a bit barbaric these days. But then some of that <laughs> stuff is very very good. So we we, we take the good stuff. Um, from from other organizations when we can as well. Awesome. All right, Bill. Last question to other revenue leaders: What would be one book that you would recommend to them? Yeah, so I'm not going to say that, that you know the normal sort of SaaS books and and that sort of stuff. I think everyone has access to that sort of thing. Um, one one that I read recently, which I highly recommend to to anyone in this space, is is a book called um, Barbarians at the Gate, uh, and that's and that's about the leverage buyout stuff happening in the in the 80s and early 90s, um, corporate greed, that sort of thing, um, and the, basically the fall of the largest corporation in the world, um, which was which was done over you know crazy leverage buyout. So um, that's really good. I think I think history has a lot to teach us about uh, the present and the future. So it's it's it, I highly recommend that to anyone. I I love that recommendation. Great show. You you. Teed me up when we were talking kind of pre-show that it was going to be a good one and uh, didn't disappoint. Oh, that's great. It's also in movie form if anyone if anyone does, does, does want to skip the book. <laughs> yeah, come on. The book's always better than the movie, Much right? better. Much, much better. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Liam, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to chat to you and learn a little bit more about your world. For anyone listening that wants to connect with you, learn a little bit more, where can they find you? 
Yeah, so just on on LinkedIn, you can't miss me. Um, there's not that many many beyond Badens, so um, so yeah, li- LinkedIn's probably the easiest way, or um, or firstml.com. Uh, you know, feel free to book a demo. M- maybe I'll be on it. I, I tend to, you know, still jump on a few, so um, that those are probably the easiest ways. Smooth. Well, we'll put your LinkedIn down in the show notes just in case uh, you know they they find the other the, the other beyond out there. But uh, thank you so much again, and to everyone that's listened to this episode, thank you so much too. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.